Find somebody and tell them good morning.
Good morning, Carpenter's Way. Here I am in the dark over the, uh, there I am. Now I'm in the light. It is good to see you this morning. Welcome to Carpenter's Way. Did you have a wonderful week? And thankful for the rain, huh? Is it, it's beautiful this morning. Okay, that's your weather report. It's good to have you here. This morning, you know, I, I've been asked lately, uh, you know, do you do baptisms at Carpenter's Way? I know that the B stands for Baptist. Do you do them? And and the answer is yes. It's been uh, probably eight or nine months. For the 12 months before that, we had a ton of baptisms. And then the well dried up. Uh, I was actually going to start rebaptizing all of you um, because the scorecard among pastors gets bad. But it's, fortunately, we don't have to do that. But it is so great to have this morning. We have a couple baptisms for you, and we're really excited. I, I want to start by setting the stage on what baptism is and is not. Baptism is, uh, once you accept Jesus Christ as your Savior, baptism is is saying, it's the next step. It's saying, I, I want to I let the world know that I'm here to do the work of the Lord, and I'm going to serve Him with my life. Um, we at Carpenter's Way, uh, you, have a, you have baptisms and acts that are a lot like walking an aisle or praying a prayer, baptism for salvation. Um, it's not the baptism that saves you. It's the confession of your heart. But there, uh, at Carpenter's Way, we actually perform the baptism that Jesus participated in. That's the believer's baptism, to say, I'm here to give my life to the Lord and, and to follow Him and surrender control. And one of the things that really excites me about that as a pastor of Carpenter's Way is, uh, is when there's a spiritual head of the family involved that's walking with the Lord, we, we find it a privilege to allow them to baptize. And so this morning, we have two baptisms, and one is going to be, uh, the, the first, this is Graceland. Say hi to everybody. There you go. Uh, and her father, Nathan, uh, and uh, he will be baptizing her. Gracelyn, you and I met in my office a couple weeks ago. Do you remember that? And I asked you why you wanted to be baptized. Remember what you said? No. I can tell you what you said. You said, <laughs> I'm, I have a video of it. Uh, actually, you said, Gracelyn, you said, I love Jesus so much. Remember that? Uh-huh. You said, I love Jesus so much, and I want everybody else to know. You remember that? 
Uh-huh. And so this morning, Graceland, after that conversation, uh, we, we hooked up the time, and her dad's going to baby, uh, bab- babysit her. Her dad's going to baptize her. Nathan, how long have you all been at Carpenter's Way? About a year and a half, and, uh, and we are uh, very involved in our church. Glad to have you here. And so I asked Nathan if he wanted to baptize his daughter. Did, did you want to add anything? busy with life and it's you know school and kids and work and just all sorts of things and if there's anything that we do in this world uh, being a part of leading your kids to Christ I mean nothing will compare to that and so uh, it's awesome to see our children as they come to make those decisions and I just she's about to baptize herself (laughs) I don't know if it's a big deal but it seemed wrong anyway I just, I just pray that, that um, each of my kids, and today especially Grayson, that she develops that relationship with God and not just the religious. Like we've learned here, not just the religious, go to church, read your Bible, pray, but have that personal touch with God, that relationship. Keanu, can you, can you come up here for a second? Bring your kids, please. Just don't, don't argue with the pastor. Uh, Cammy has committed her life to raising her family and loving God, and I have appreciated the conversations we've had because I see that in her and in her, in her family. And so we want to take this moment, and we're going uh, to have you baptize her, and then we're going to pray for your whole family, okay? All right. I baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. All right, I'm going to pray for this whole family. Father, we thank you for the Wilson family, and Lord, we thank you uh, for the passion they have to know you and to honor you with their lives. Father, we're all such imperfect people, and we thank you for mercy and grace that allows us to keep walking with you in our own, in our own frail nature. And Father, I pray for Graceland. I pray that she would grow up, and this is the first stage of being a woman of God. I thank you that she loves you. I was blown away at her passion in my office. It brought tears to my eyes to hear her say, I love Jesus so much. And I, I was moved by that, Father. And I thank you that um, it's way more than us loving you. It's the fact that you loved us that makes it count, and we thank you for that. And, I, I, Lord, I pray, I pray for Nathan and Cammie that you would bless their marriage, that you would, uh, you would walk with them. And, and uh, Father, for the kids, as they continue to raise these kids in the knowledge and love of the Lord, we pray that uh, whatever, whatever adventures you take them on, that they would go together with you as their leader. We pray your blessings on them, uh, especially on Graceland this morning, and thank you for this precious time. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Uh, the other, uh, we have another couple uh, that are going to come, and it's the Hodges, uh, Michelle Hodges and her husband Brent. Um, when we talked about Michelle being baptized, wait, let's see if they've rethought this. <laughs> yep. They're still here. So when, when, I, when I talked with Michelle, Michelle has known the Lord for many, many years. And uh, you ready? All right, why don't you come in, Brent? You can talk. <laughs> I'm just teasing, dude. <laughs> Do you want to sing? What do you want me to sing? <laughs> <laughs> How long have you all been coming to Carpenter's Way? Uh, four months now. Four months. Four months. And uh, uh, your wife, when we were talking, uh, she has actually been baptized but she wanted to make a statement and say, you know, learned so much since then. I get a lot of questions from parents of young children about, uh, you know, should they be baptized? And, and my thing is, man, if the kids want to come, let them come. And uh, as they grow up, as long as they've accepted Christ and as they grow up, and if they 
if they come into a deeper relationship with the Lord that they feel like they want to make a public statement, this is the one we make. And so it's, it's an honor to have you all here today. And uh, is, she, is she here? Because I'm going to start singing. I think she ran away. Did she really? <laughs> she well, I'm going to get in and baptize you. So, <laughs> Michelle, uh, you want to share why uh, what brings you back into the baptismal pool today? I'm just tired of fighting this battle alone. I surrender. I surrender. Good enough for me. That's, that's okay. I don't need to preach this morning. <laughs> All right. Well, why don't we? Why don't you baptize her, Brent, and then we'll pray for you both. Oh, I can't pick my arm up. I baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. <laughs> well, Brent, you did well. She was concerned he'd hold her under, and I said, then it's a free-for-all, and we'll videotape it. <laughs> but uh, what a cool thing when we start talking about baptizing. I mentioned about the possibility of your husband baptizing you, and she jumped all over that. Absolutely. And we want you to remind, remind you, uh, whether you are uh, the male spiritual head of your house or the female spiritual head of your house, God lays it on you to shepherd your family. That, too often we, we leave that upon the pastor, and, you know, we're not in there. And uh, what a beautiful picture this morning of that. So thank you. I'm going to pray for you now. Father, I thank you for the Hodges family. I thank you that they have... Uh, uh, become a part of our family here and our spiritual journey as a church, I thank you this morning that they would stand before all of these people, some they know and some they don't, to say, I am surrendering control of my life to Jesus Christ. And uh, we're blessed, Father, to hear that testimony. And uh, what a great testimony it is. And I pray, Father, that you would bless this family. I pray that you would bless those they come in contact with. I pray their home would become an embassy for the King of Kings, that people would walk in and smell something different about this place, to know and, and that they would want what this family has. So bless them in their journey. Bless us in our journey with them. And thank you for this wonderful moment. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Wow, that was wonderful. Thank you, Pastor Mark, for leading a baptism. Just, I don't know why I thought about doing that. It just seemed funny in my head like most things. If, you're, <laughs> if you are visiting with us this morning, we're really glad to have you at Carpenter's Way. Um, uh, this, uh, it, is a privilege, it is a privilege to gather at least once a week, sometimes uh, when we're able a couple times a week, to get to know the Lord and be reminded that His grace and His mercies are sufficient and that He loves us. And uh, I want to make it clear this morning as we start that if you don't know him as your Savior, or if you do know him as your Savior but you've been running away for a while, I want you to know that I have it from the Word of God that he's not mad at you this morning. He's mad about you. He's chasing you. You don't have to chase him. You don't have to find your way back into his good graces. He did that on the cross. And uh, we invite you, if you've never taken a public stand, to participate with us. We have a few more baptisms coming up. And uh, we invite you to join us. Take a stand. Say, look, my life belongs to the Lord. And uh, you're thinking, I don't want to stand up in front of all those people. And I just want to make it clear, that's the point. That is the point, to say, look, you can, you can look at me, and you can hold me accountable, and you can pray for me. And uh, as Graceland grows up, and as Michelle continues to go, you're going to see them make mistakes. But we, what we don't do, which is often done in the church, is we don't get critical. We pray. We pray for them. We don't even, we, we try to fight those thoughts. Man, I'm glad that's not my family. Well, your family's got junk too, and we're thankful to God for his mercy and grace, aren't we? Thankful for that. So if you're here this morning, we do not expect you to be perfect. If you're perfect, this is not the church for you. 
Um, we are glad that you're here, and uh, there's some things in the worship guide I want to highlight. Uh, for those of you who have children or students uh, in 6th to 12th grade, uh, Jeff and Mark Dubose are going to have a meeting right up here over on this side, immediately following the service this morning, around 11 or 11.05 or 11.45 or 12.15, whenever I'm done. And uh, you, you can... You can join us up there, and uh, he has some things he wants to share with you about this year, so please plan on doing that. If you have not registered to vote, you can't complain if you don't participate. Uh, immediately between services, following the service, if you go out the back door and go to the right, Sharon Kennedy's out there, and she's registering you to vote. It's nonpartisan. If you want to vote in the Communist Party, we just want to make it possible for you. <laughs> that was great. Um, I think that does it. You can read all the other announcements. Um, I wanna, this week we're going to be praying for the Christian Information Service Center. This is a ministry we participate in the community that feeds those who can't feed themselves, uh, the hungry, the poor, uh, and those who have needs. And it's a privilege for us to participate with them. So uh, we'll be praying for them. The only other announcement is we're in that season of the year where we're preparing for our annual business meeting. And that means that nominations need to be made by the membership for deacons and elders. And I'll be talking about that more in a couple weeks. But you have the insert in your worship guide. So if you'd like to, uh, if you know of somebody who's a member of Carpenter's Way that you feel would fit well in a deacon role or an elder role, please nominate them and either turn it in on the offering plate or you can hand it to me or one of the office people. But, uh, but anyway, that's that. So I'm going to ask our ushers to come forward at this time so we can prepare for uh, our offering. If you're visiting, this is not for you. This is the one part of the service that belongs to those of us who attend regularly. We're glad you're here. We do not want you distracted by money. Um, thanks for being here. For those of you watching on the Internet, grab your Bible. We're going to be wrapping up our study in Jonah today, and we're just glad to have you joining us. Uh, Father, we love you and uh, thankful that you loved us first before we even knew anything about you. And it is our prayer this morning that you would own this service. Uh, it is now my prayer that we would turn our eyes away from the business of church to totally on you. And whether it be in the music or the preaching, uh, it is my prayer that the words of men would fade away so that the words of God can endure forever. We do love you, Dad, and we thank you for loving us. In Jesus' name, amen.
Everything else is worthless when compared with the infinite value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have discarded everything else, counting it all as garbage, so that I could gain Christ and become one with him. I no longer count on my own righteousness through obeying the law. Rather, I become righteous through the faith in Christ, for God's way of making us right with himself depends on faith. Rain. 
who is like our God who spoke and there was love and saw how it should be and who is like our God who sent his son to die to set the captive free we will exalt you I got the key over all the earth we will sing being through with our worship to you by the praise that you're due being through let our worship reach you like the sin of perfume Lifting you where you belong, being through, being through. Who is like our God? Who is like our God? The strength beyond compare. Love that knows no end. Who is like our God, the ever reigning King, and always faithful friend? We will exalt you, our God, the King, over all the earth. We will sing, oh, being true. With our worship to you, by the praise that you do, we'll be in our worship reach you, like the sin of perfume, lifting you where you belong.
you realize what you just sang, but you basically just told the Lord, not basically, you just told the Lord you wanted him to take control, be enthroned, take your throne. And uh, we joined Graceland and Michelle this morning as we sing that, telling God we want, we want him and others to know that, uh, that we're his and that he's king of our lives. And, uh, you know, we do that not because he needs us, but because of what he's done on our, in, in our behalf, the mercy. We were singing of his mercy and grace that, that chases us. I mean, his, we, we, we just can't wrap our minds around how in love with us and how much God likes us. Um, I mean, isn't his mercy awesome? Amen. Uh, so God sends Jonah, his prophet, an officer in his kingdom, to the Assyrian city of Nineveh to tell them of the coming judgment of God. Rather than doing what he was instructed, Jonah actually takes a a ship in the opposite direction. And as a result, God sends a storm that nearly sinks that ship, forcing Jonah to confess to the crew that he's the reason for the storm. He actually instructs the crew that their only hope to survive is by throwing him overboard. And so eventually they do, after much hesitation. Uh, Once they throw him overboard, the scripture tells us that the storm stopped immediately, causing such a dramatic shift and a result of prayer that the the sailors that throw him overboard, that are trying to right the ship, actually become worshipers of this God of Jonah, the Hebrew God. Um, And Jonah, that is now in the depths of the ocean, is swallowed up by a great fish. And it talks about him being in there for three days. He doesn't die. And he finds himself alive in the belly of this great fish, and he he cries out to God for salvation. Not for his soul, but for his skin. God, forgive me. I shouldn't rebel. Save me from the deep water. Save me from the seaweed. Read the prayer. And God answers and turns him into whale vomit. And he ends up on the shore And as he's sitting there, God tells him again, it says a second time, Jonah, go to Nineveh and tell those people of the coming judgment that is going to come upon them because they're evil. And this time he goes. And as a nation, from pauper to prince, Jonah 3.10 says that when God saw that what they had done and how they had stopped their evil ways, it tells us that they actually repented. They repented. They turned from their evil. They cried to the God of Jonah for mercy, and he gave them mercy. It says that he relented or changed his mind, and he didn't carry out the destruction that he had threatened. Mercy. Man, I love that word. God showed mercy in this story to the men on the ship who were worshipers of false gods. God showed mercy to Jonah who was in the belly of a great fish, who was in willful, absolute rebellion of the first degree. For those of you who think that if you willfully sin, you can lose your salvation, this speaks against that. He was in willful, absolute, 180-degree rebellion against the one he was called to serve, and yet God allows him to continue in service. That's mercy. And God shows mercy to the enemies of Israel, the Assyrians, by relenting on the judgment that he was going to send on them. 
In case it has not become clear to you as of yet, the hero of this true story is not Jonah. It's not a great fish. It's not the Assyrians, but it is the hero of the story who is the creator of the universe, the king of kings, the God of gods, who loves even, likes people so bad that he wants to hang out with us. He likes people. He wants to have a right relationship with us. He loves sailors following false religion. He loves wayward and rebellious prophets. He loves enemies of Israel, the Assyrians who are evil. It is so clear in the Bible We have this idea that if we're smart enough or can figure it out, we are going to find God. And I've got news for you. That is theologically wrong. Look at John 3. Look at what it says. For God so loved the world that he he gave his only son. Some versions translate the word gave his sent. He sent his son so that everyone who believes in him won't perish but have eternal life. God sent his son into the world, not to judge the world, but to save the world through him. We have this idea that we've got to find him. That is such a religious mindset. He has been searching for us since before we were alive. We, we've got this grace thing wrong. It's, it's like we, we think because that's how we live. We keep, we keep thinking God keeps waiting for us to figure it out. It's not like that in Scripture. God came seeking us. He sought the Assyrians. He sought the sailors. He sought Jonah in the belly of a whale. He did all this stuff so that he could have a relationship with them. And aren't we glad this morning that God is not the angry old deity or goofy-looking young fat deity that sits somewhere in stone waiting for us to figure it out. Uh, He's not an angry old God who's just handing out justice. This week, Lawrence Owens reminded me of another word besides grace and mercy, and we've talked with that throughout this. But there's another word, another theological truth that is just as important. In fact, for us to value mercy and grace, we have to value this other word, and the word is justice. Justice is getting what we do deserve. Mercy is, is, uh, <laughs> mercy is not getting what we deserve, and grace is getting what we don't deserve. All three work together. If you are a false God-worshipping sailor, you deserve to be drowned and face the true God in judgment. That's justice. If you are a prophet in outright rebellion, you deserve to be eaten by a fish and face the judge. If you are an evil enemy of God's nation, Israel, you deserve to be destroyed without warning. And if you are born under the wrath of God, his justice says that you deserve to be condemned. But his mercy and grace means he sends prophets like Jonah, and ultimately God himself comes seeking and saving you to to forgive you. And we must never, ever forget that God has chosen to show mercy and grace to us when the condemnation of justice is what we deserve. People keep asking, even Christians, how could a loving God send people to hell? A loving God doesn't let us go to hell without an option. We are going to hell in a handbasket because we deserve it. That's justice. We are on our way from the moment we're conceived, David said. It is a loving God that said, I'm going down there. I am not going to let them die without a fight. I do not want to send them to hell. I, I've told you this before, but my, we don't know the emo- emotion often of the scriptures, but I grew up in an era where, where when he separated the sheep and the goats, the believers from the unbelievers, he says, well done, thou good and faithful servant, enter now into the joy of thy salvation to the believers and to the non-believer. He says, depart from me, ye cursed, into the everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. And that's kind of an angry, a- angry casting off, but I'm not clear. I'm not clear from the Greek whether or not it's angry or even brokenhearted. Depart from me. You're cursed now. 
go to the everlasting fire that was really, really prepared for the devil and his angels. In other words, it wasn't even prepared for you. You didn't have to go there. Everything else in Scripture points out that God is going, come on, let me save you. Everywhere. If, if you could write, if you could, if you could say, one thing to fix this thing with God, everybody would just say, I, if, I could, if we could create a religion that would absolve you of your sin, somewhere along the line, fairness in you would say, oh, you gotta, I wish I could just say I'm sorry and God would forgive me. Well, look at Romans 10. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart God raised him from the dead, you'll be forgiven. Don't let the word saved throw you off. You'll be saved from the condemnation. You'll be forgiven. For it is by believing in your heart that you are made right with God. And it is by confessing with your mouth that you are saved. And as the scriptures tell us, anyone who trusts in him will never be disgraced. Jew and Gentile are the same in this respect. They have the same Lord who gives generously to all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved or forgiven. Man, if you, if you are here in search of God or, or mercy, if you know you are under condemnation, if you know this is going to get ugly if 30 seconds after you die and you're going to stand before a judge, I am telling you, that judge sent his only begotten son to make his way into your life, to make you right with himself, and all you've got to do is accept it. That's too easy. Then pay for your own sin, my friend. Pay for your own sin. That's your choice. There's no other choice in the universe. Piling good on top of bad only makes... The bad covered up, but it's still there. And God wants to remove the bad through the blood of Jesus Christ. So how do I get saved? Tell him you want to be saved. It's not complicated. That's too easy. That's what he said. Come to me, all ye who labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. For my burden is light and my load is easy. Please, this morning, I beg of you to call on him if you don't know him. Lord Jesus, I ask you now to speak to us from your word. And if there's somebody in this room or on the internet who doesn't know you, I pray that wherever they are, they would simply say, God, remember me in your kingdom. I'm in trouble. Because you promised that all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. So I pray that they would call out in hum humility and thankfulness. And for us, Father, may we never forget the mercy and grace you've shown to us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Unfortunately, those of us who receive mercy from God ourselves often don't wish it for others. We simply don't like some people for lots of reasons. And because of that, we want to see God rain fire down on them. And that's the story of Jonah. In Jonah chapter 4, verses 1 to 10, if you want to know what Jonah's thinking and why he gets on a boat and goes the other way, listen to him. The change of plans greatly upset Jonah, and he became very angry. So he complained to the Lord about it. Didn't I say before I left home that you'd do this? I mean, I want you to think about the arrogance. It's almost funny. Didn't I tell you, God, that if I went there, they'd repent? That is why I ran away to Tarshish. I knew that you are merciful and compassionate, dang it. Slow to get angry and filled with unfailing love. You are eager to turn your back on, on, and, uh, from destroying people. Just kill me now. Uh, I wish I could tell you I'm making this up, but that's exactly what it says. You may have not heard it in that tone before, but the fact is, that is verse for word for word exactly what it says. 
I would rather be dead than alive if what I predicted will not happen. Then the Lord replied, is it, is it right for you to be angry about this? Then Jonah, uh, then Jonah went out to the east side of the city and made a shelter to sit under as he waited to see what would happen to the city. Verse 6, and the Lord God arranged. We're not going to talk about that anymore this week, but I do want to point it out because we've been talking about it the last two weeks. The Lord God arranged for a leafy plant to grow there, and soon it spread its broad leaves over Jonah's head, shading him from the said sun. This eased his discomfort, and Jonah was very grateful for the plant. But God also arranged for a worm. Thank God for the worm. The next morning at dawn, the worm ate through the stem of the plant so that it withered away. Some amazing worm. And as the sun grew hot, God arranged for a scorching east wind to blow on Jonah. <laughs> what, what, you don't think that's very nice? For those of you who don't think that God disciplines his children in uncomfortable ways, you're not reading the story. He sent the plant, he sent the worm, and then he sent the wind. Then the sun beat down on his head until he grew faint and wished to die. Death is certainly better than living like this, he exclaimed. Please notice that he doesn't repent or say, oops, you know, or God, I'm kind of a jerk. He just says, just kill me now. Then Jonah, or then God said to Jonah, and by the way, you want to hear it, we want to listen when God speaks. Is it right for you to be angry because a plant died? Yeah, Jonah replied, even angry enough to die. <laughs> okay, this is a guy with some courage. I mean, he's obviously feels close to God because he's responding to him like that. Now I want you to listen, because God's about to say something real here. Then the Lord said, you feel sorry about the plant, though you did nothing to put it there. It came quickly, it died quickly. But Nineveh has more than 120,000 people living in spiritual darkness, not to mention all the animals. Don't ask me a theological ramifications of the animals living in spiritual darkness. I got nothing on that. I like, most of you know that because your dog messes on your floor all the time. But look at this last line. This is the end of the book. Shouldn't I feel sorry for such a great city? Shouldn't I feel sorry for such a great city? It's kind of hard to imagine that a person could wish for somebody's condemnation or judgment or, or doom in hell or at least be open about it, right? I mean, this is pretty raw. None of you would say it. I mean, that'd be politically incorrect. But I want to remind you why Jonah is so mad. Jonah's mad at what God is doing in the world around him. That was the beginning of this chapter. Are you saving these people? So he sits on a mountain to watch him save them. I can't believe it. I knew you were going to save this. He doesn't like what God's doing in the world. He doesn't like what God is doing in his life. Why'd you take this plant from me? I'd rather be dead. But the th the, those are the two things that make his mad. And now he's mad that God is showing mercy to these people who are enemies of God's people. Um, that's enough for us to end on today. But I'm not going to because you're not that lucky. Because as we wrap up our study of Jonah today, I want to show you one more thing. And that is that Jonah is not the only one in Scripture who wants mercy for his friends and judgment for those he doesn't like. In fact, as I prepared for our time today, I came up with three different groups that our spiritual historical family throughout, throughout history has had a problem with God saving. Three different groups of people. 
The first one is what we have seen in Jonah's life. I want to say it's a nationalistic group. Enemies of his nation, uh, as he saw, were enemies of God. I want to call it human patriotism. These Assyrians were the enemies of Israel. They hated each other, and they were a thorn in the side of the Jews. Because of that, the Jews thought of the Assyrians as gross, sinful, false God-worshipping pigs that wanted nothing but harm for them as a nation. And Jonah, as an officer of God, thought it was his patriotic duty to hate them and see them destroyed. So when God told him to go, he, knowing God, immediately knew what God was fixing to do, and instead of obeying that God, realizing that that's a higher calling than patriotism, he gets mad that God is going to, well, not be who he wants him to be. You see, it worked in the imagery of the Jews that God is a Jewish God and loves the Jews more than the Gentiles. But when you read Scripture, he says that I'm going to bless the nation of the world through you. Jonah actually resented God for wanting to save his enemies. Now, let me be clear. Jonah liked God destroying his fleshly enemies. But Jonah isn't the only one who struggled with God saving non-Jews. So did the Christians in Acts. Look at Acts chapter 15. Look at these verses with me. While Paul and Barnabas were in Antioch of Syria, some men from Judea arrived and began to teach the believers. Unless you are circumcised as required by the law of Moses, you can't be saved. You can't be saved. For those of you who think that circumcision is a religious duty, it's not. It's a nationalistic duty. It makes you a Jew. You see, the Jews, according to the Old Testament and the laws of the Torah that Moses wrote, where you could, you could be a Gentile alienated into the Jewish nation if you would go through the cer ceremony of circumcision and renouncing of your previous engagement and becoming part of the nation of Israel. You weren't given all the rights, but you were allowed to be a Jew, small j. And the fact is that these people arrive on the scene in Antioch of Syria, and they tell them that unless they're circumcised as required by the laws of Moses, you can't be saved. Paul and Barnabas disagreed with them, arguing vehemently. Finally, the church decided to send Paul and Barnabas to Jerusalem, accompanied by some local believers, to talk to the apostles and elders about this question. The church sent the delegates to Jerusalem, and they stopped along the way in Phoenicia and Samaria to visit the believers. They told them, much to everyone's joy, joy that the Gentiles too were being converted. When they arrived in Jerusalem, Paul, Barnabas and Paul were welcomed by the whole church, including the apostles and the elders. They reported everything that God had done through them. But some of the believers who belonged to a sect of the Pharisees stood up and insisted the Gentile converts must be circumcised and required to, to follow the law of Moses. In other words, we will not allow them to be considered saved unless they become Jews. In case you're not clear, that's called prejudice. The Bible's full of it. The disciples interacting with the Samaritan woman, you see prejudice. All of this is prejudice. The Jews believed, like many American Christians, that you could only be saved if you were one of them or like them or had their value system. They didn't understand that God came to seek and save all the lost, including Gentile lost, including Assyrian lost. Some of the Jews here who had become followers of Jesus wanted these Gentiles to become Jews in order to truly be saved. Prejudice. National prejudice. And if we're not careful to let God be God of all the people and king of all kings, our theology becomes a tainted theology based upon our desires, our feelings, and our patriotism. Must I continue? You know where I'm going, right? Much of the problem with the evangelical church is they have flags on their stage. We have forgotten that God is the God of Russians and socialists and communists and People that live in oligarchies and people who live in whatever. God is the God of everyone. And Jesus is the Savior of jihadists. He came to die on the cross for the jihadist.
And it's cute or funny. We laugh at each other, and I've said this. Over my dead, cold body. <laughs> Let's kill the last of them. Let's draw a nuke. That may be an, a nationalistic way of fighting them, but as a believer, you're called to go to the needy and share Christ with them, whether they're Muslims or polytheists or Baptist or Catholic or Mormon. And if we laugh at Jonah, we forget often that we're just like him. We choose winners and losers based upon what country they're from, how they act, and what flag they, they raise. Well, let me be clear. This isn't just a struggle for Jonah, a couple of people in Acts, and us. This was a struggle for Paul. In fact, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 13 to 17, he says this, Christ's love now controls us. Now, now, that's an important statement for what he's about to say. Since we believe that Christ died for all, we must also believe that he died for all, uh, that we have all died to our old life. He died for everyone. That's the second time he said it in these couple of verses. So that those who receive his new life will no longer live for themselves. Instead, they will live for Christ, who died and was raised for them. So, here's the, here's the big statement. We have stopped evaluating others from a human point of view. Do you get it? Worldview, nationalism, patriotism. We don't look at people anymore from that perspective. He said, at one time, we thought of Christ merely from a human point of view. Boy, how differently we know him now. That means that anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. That old life is gone, a new life has begun. So we've got an evangelical church concerned about an election coming up, and, and I get it, I understand why you're concerned, but God wants to remind you, and Paul wants to remind you, that there are bigger fish to fry than what happens at the Supreme Court of this country. Well, what could be bigger than that? Sharing Christ with the person that's about cutting your head off is, is the answer to that. Well, I don't want my head to cut off. Nobody wants their head cut off. But your life is not your own anymore. You've been bought with a price. You are, in every way, an officer in the kingdom of God. That's why you're here. That's what you do. It's not your right to hate people. Because if Jesus loves them, you should love him. His love should compel you. Well, I'm not like that. Then you need to surrender more. What a beautiful statement was made in our baptism this morning. I, I want to surrender well, what about us? Not over, over my dead body. Okay, but you won't find the joy and peace of the Lord that he offers. You, you, won't be, you won't be as effective for the king. We have died to our old self, and that isn't just a thing about sin. It's about how we live and how we view people. Look, I'm as concerned, okay, Mark Wilkie, not pastor, just me. I'm as concerned as everybody else about an immigration issue that's including people who want to kill us. But since they're here, I'm not going to reject them. I must minister to them. When you meet somebody who is here illegally, what do you do about that person? You call your spouse and say, I'm out of an illegal airland. Ha, ha, ha. Well, what did you do? Ignored them? Our job is to minister to them because God has put us in contact with them. It's no different than Jonah. I want you to go to Nineveh, and I want you to minister to those people. Do you know who those people are? I know who those people are. This, this is not uncommon. Nationalism, though, isn't the only reason people in Scripture didn't want to see others saved. In Scripture, we find that not only Pharisees, but the disciples at times didn't want certain sinners saved. Remember the story of uh, this story in, in Matthew chapter 9, verses 10 to 13. Matthew invited Jesus and his disciples to his home as dinner guests, along with many tax collectors and other, look at the word, 
disreputable sinners. That's clean in a church, but that means some lowlifes, real, real wicked people. But when the Pharisees saw this, they asked the disciples, why does your teacher eat with such scum? Let me, um, let me read between the lines of what's going on here. How is it that these Pharisees had access to the disciples? You know that the Pharisees aren't going into the party, right? So where are the disciples? They're not inside either. It is reasonable, I can't prove it, but it is reasonable to believe that Jesus is inside at this evil party where bad stuff is going on, and he's ministering to those people, while the disciples and all the Pharisees are outside, and there's only one reason for them to be outside, because they wouldn't dare be caught dead with those people. Those people. Fascinating. This isn't the only time. Had the woman at the well, you'll remember that. Or how about Judas, when, when Jesus lets the prostitute wash his feet with expensive perfume? Self-righteous Judas, what a waste of money. If only she had sold it and given it to the poor. Of course, Judas cared about the poor. Isn't that what we say? I'm not going to waste my time over here. And Jesus said, what is it to you? Is this any of your business, dude? Well, of course it's my business. I'm a disciple in the kingdom of God. Jonah, what is it to you? You didn't make the plant. Why do you feel sorry for the plant? I mean, there's 120 people in spiritual blindness. Do you not care for them? No, well, not really. I can't worry about them. But you know what? I'm really hot. It's hot. The wind. I know I sent the wind, dude. But what about the sun? I made the sun. I'm getting a sunburn. I'm the one. Nationalism. People who sin outside of our, our realm of acceptability. The fact is that there are some within God's family who have had the tendency to resent God for his mercy to homosexuals. Not many of you, but how about your ex-wife who committed adultery on you? Or your ex-husband? Or your parent who didn't treat you the way they should have? Or your pastor who abused you? Well, that's different. It's personal. It's always personal. When do we do what Paul does and say, God's love is going to compel me? It's going to control me. It's going to control how I see people and how I interact with people. See, I, I get why people struggle with homosexuality and homosexuals who are flagrant and in your face, but the truth is they're not rejecting us. They're rejecting our dad. Well, somebody's got to stand up to them. No, you don't. You don't have to stand up to them. One day they will stand before the judge. And our job is to keep them from standing before the judge. Well, I don't want to. That's the message. The truth is, we've got people, whether for patri patriotic reasons or for sin reasons, we simply don't think God should show mercy to. The kind of mercy we got, just like Jonah. But there's one more group I thought is interesting. I came across a third group, and you're going to really like this one. It's almost funny. This other group that some in Scripture, the, some of Jesus' followers in Scripture didn't want God to show mercy to were people that were just downright annoying. In, cha in Mark chapter 10, it tells us that one day parents brought their children to Jesus so he could touch and bless them. But the disciples scolded the parents for bothering him. That's, uh, that's gospelese for, excuse me, excuse me, show's over for the day. The master needs to rest. Okay, he's done preaching. He's done feeding people. Could you please move your children back? 
Children are too loud. They're jumping on his lap, and you're going to ruin his gown that's already dirty, okay? Step back. You can feel it. He's going to have another show tomorrow morning after breakfast. I mean, the disciples were constantly confused in their role, just like we are. They, they thought they were doing a service. So, so the, some parents brought him, and the disciples scolded the parents for bothering them. When Jesus saw what was happening, he was angry with his disciples, and he said to them, let the children come to me. Don't stop them. For the kingdom of God belongs to those who are like these children. I tell you the truth, anyone who doesn't receive the kingdom of God like this child won't even enter it. Then he took the children in his arms and he placed his hands on their heads and he blessed them. The, the fact is that Jonah isn't the only misguided, angry prophet in the Old Testament. He actually, he actually looks like the rest of us, making decisions and finding joy and willing to serve where we feel God is, should be serving and ministering and doing his work. And it's completely based upon our worldview rather than his. Actually, I'm not sure if you realize this or not, but this is actually the same message that we studied in James, right before Jonah. In fact, in James chapter 4, you remember these verses. Humble yourselves before the Lord. You know what it means to humble yourself? It doesn't mean to go, oh, okay, Dad. That's not what it is. It means bowing. It means, it means going, I, I thought I knew, and I, I don't know. You are so much wiser and smarter and loving and merciful than I ever imagined. I... <laughs> Thank you for even putting up with a person like me. That's humility. So humble yourselves before God. Resist the devil and he'll flee from you. Come close to God and God will come close to you. Wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts. Why? Because your loyalty is divided between God and the world. Let there be tears for what you have done. Let there be sorrow and deep grief. Let there be sadness instead of laughter and gloom instead of joy. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up in honor. And the, the, the thing about all these verses is that in the middle it explains what the problem is, that we have a divided loyalty. The followers of God, Jonah had a divided loyalty. Jonah was more passionate for all things Jewish than he was all things Jehovah. Some of us, maybe in this room or maybe not, some of you on the internet, you are more passionate about all things America more than you are passionate about all things Jehovah. Some of us are more passionate about all things Mark than we are all things Jehovah. Like who you minister to, who you hang out with, who God could put you in contact with, who you can love and who you can't, based upon history, who has offended you. Just so you know, I'm not making this up. I've had people leave Carpenter's Way in the past 12 years because I said God would forgive their spouse who committed adultery. I understand being deeply, deeply hurt. I understand having a broken heart. I understand messing up your family. I even understand the poverty in which you live because of that decision that was made on behalf of your family. But I'm still here to tell you that your job now as a child of God is to have the mind of Christ. Jesus Christ lived in poverty so that we could be saved. He had so many options. Do you realize that when he was tempted by Lucifer, Lucifer offered him the world, and he was tempted to take it, but he didn't sin. Lucifer offered him food. Jesus said, I don't live by bread alone. What we want, everything. We want our country. We want our comfort. We want them to leave us alone, whoever they are. We want the gays to go to their corner and the jihadists to go to their corner. And God is saying, I didn't send you to sit in the corner of Christianity. I sent you to interact with those people that might harm you. Well, what if they kill me? Then you come home. It won't be a shock to me. It may be to you. The problem is that we have decided 
what our worldview is. Jonah isn't just a guy who lived around 700 B.C. and got swallowed up like a big fish. He looks, sounds, and acts just like us. And you know I'm right. You know, I think the church, in all of her wonder, has a tendency to keep helping you excuse behavior. And it's time for us to knock it off or or quit pretending we're serious. I mean, the great thing about Jonah is that Satan makes it about a big old whale, and we don't even know it was a whale. Kevin Hudson says it's a whale shark. He tells me he scuba-dived with him. I don't know if he's been in the belly of one or not. No idea. I absolutely believe it's a true story. Some of you believe it's a parable. I think Jesus quotes Jonah and and says it's real. He says, just like Jonah was in the belly of the whale, I'm going to be in the tomb. The fact is, friends, that when you gave your life to Christ, you said, I'm not my own. I've been bought with a price. That's 2 Corinthians. It's very simple. And the truth is, most of us are still trying to maintain control. And the two are mutually exclusive. Now, let me be clear. I'm prejudiced. It's not against blacks for me. It's probably against people of Asian descent, I've told you this before, that come from the Vietnam area because I knew kids whose dads were hurt there. I'm prejudiced. Always will be. But the fact is, despite my prejudices, I'm still called to tell them about Jesus. Because it's his love for them that controls me. And you're prejudiced. You don't like Yankees. (laughs) By the way, I'm not a Yankee. I'm from Southern California, which I found out from some of you is actually worse than being a Yankee. (laughs) But you know, you know that you got something in your heart against someone or some group of people. How do I know that? Because some of you take pictures on Friday night at Walmart to show all your friends. And the fact is, I get it. That's not your culture. It's still your ministry. You got a divided flesh, okay? It's what it is. I'm not, I'm not banging on you. I'm with you. I'm, I'm in the middle of this. I read this this week and I went, this really, this is, I'm sure glad I'm not like this. <laughs> yeah. The truth is, we're called. So, what are we going to do about it? Let's close in prayer. Help us to do the right thing, help us to hear from your spirit. Help us to follow your prompting in our life. In Jesus' name, amen. A couple things. Number one, please look at your watch. It is 1047. I am that good today. (laughs) Number two, I know that most of you are absolutely in love with Jesus, and I'm not beating on you. I get it. It's hard. I'm with you. I'm walking the same ground. This guy up here that preaches has it all together. The guy who steps down is a mess. So I'm not beating on you. I know it's hard. And I'm not asking you to decide today to go find a jihadist to hug, okay? That's not what we're doing. I'm simply asking you to say to God, change my heart. Change my heart and let me see people as you see people. Even if I choose not to like them or I can't like them, help me to love them like you love them, okay? Bible study is going to start in 10 minutes. Uh, Sixth through eight, uh, 12th grade teaching, our parents meeting here. God bless you guys. Have a wonderful week.